Good morning, everyone. My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Press, and it's my joy and honor to give you God's Word. We are right in the middle of a series on the on the book of Psalms, we're recovering different Psalms during our summer months. And so today we're going to consider together Psalm 103. And so if you're able, I want to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And even though I'll be preaching from the entire Psalm, I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 5, and then we'll shoot down till the end of the chapter to verses 20 to 22. Psalm 103, starting with verse 1, this is God's Word for you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And then in verse 20, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do as well. Bless the Lord, all his works and all the places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And you can go ahead and take your seats. Well, this psalm in Psalm 103 is, whether you could recognize it from the reading, is not exactly a prayer and it's not exactly a song. So it's not a psalm that you necessarily pray to God, even though you could. And it's also not a psalm that you could sing to God, even though you could. And the reason is because this psalm is unique, because it's really a sermon. It's a psalm that you could preach to yourself. So it's a psalm that you could pray about, it's a psalm that you could sing, but in its essence, it's a sermon that you could preach to yourself. You could preach the gospel to your own heart. That's why it says in verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's directing it to himself. He's not praying it to God. He's not singing it to the Lord. He says, bless the Lord. He's almost as if he's saying to himself, in the heart of who he is, soul, let's praise God. Let's bless him here today. And you can know that's the essence of the psalm because he does it twice in the beginning of the psalm, and then he ends the psalm with the same exact point, bless the Lord, Oh, my soul. And that word soul there is one's inner being. It's the, it's the word that captures the inner parts of someone's existence. It's the core or essence of who you are. And the psalmist, King David, is talking to himself in the core of his being. And he's saying, God deserves our praise. So he said, bless the Lord, oh, my soul. He's preaching to his soul to get it in tune with God's praise. He wants to harmonize his self-understanding of who God is and his greatness, as well as who he is in this world, and harmonize this world and what he sees and observes in culture and society. And he takes it all and he says, the only way that you could unwrangle the messiness of your heart and set it to a place where you could praise God with clarity and by the spirit of truth is if you preach to it, preach yourself, preach to yourself all the truths that are contained in Psalm 103. And that's the point of the psalm. How do you get your soul to praise God? How do you feel something? How do you get to a point where you naturally want to respond to the goodness and the greatness of who God is? Well, Psalm 103 is for you. It's going to say, preach this to your own soul. Last week, I went to a Dodgers game with a couple of pastor friends, and I go to a Dodgers game about once every 10 years. And so I went there, and in the middle of the game, everyone stood up. No one had to ask them. They just stood up, and they sang that old 
baseball game, take me, take me out to the game. And they're so passionate about it. And I'm sitting there, and I didn't stand up. I just kind of watched everyone around me. And they're yelling from the top of their lungs in Dodger Stadium. You know, one, two, three strikes are out. And then when they did this, I leaned over to my friend, who was a pastor. I was like, wouldn't it be awesome if the church would sing with half the passion that this stadium is singing about baseball? Just half the passion. If we could do that, then, man, we, our church would be okay. We'd be doing all right. And this Psalm 103 teaches us how to do this. And there are four things that the psalmist preaches to himself. And if you could do the same thing, if you could talk to yourself in this way, remind yourself to your soul of these four great truths, then you could also sing and bless the Lord. So four things that I think we could preach to ourselves are this. One, you could talk about God's benefits. Secondly, you could talk about God's grace and mercy, and they put that together. And then thirdly, you could talk about God as your father. And then fourthly, that God gives you a home. So four things that the psalmist tells us to preach to our own hearts is that, one, there are a lot of benefits to being with God. Secondly, he says, I want to look at specifically grace and mercy. And then thirdly, he says, God is your father. And then fourth, he gives you a home. So let's look at this quickly. First, we could preach to our souls about the benefits the Old Testament commentator Derek Hidner says this about Psalm 103 and its sister Psalm, Psalm 104. They kind of go together as mirror images. And Kidner says this, that Psalm 103 has admiring gratitude that shines through every line of this hymn to the God of all grace. These Psalms, 103, 104, in the galaxy of the Psalter are twin stars of the first magnitude. These Psalms bring you to the heights of heaven not to the depths of our sorrow and pain. And he says, preach this to yourself, the benefits. And in verse 2, we know it's about benefits because he says this, forget not all his benefits. Don't forget all that he's done for you. And then you're thinking, well, what are the benefits? You know, it's not health care and dental care and 401k. It's really listed there in verses 3 to 5. These are the benefits that you don't forget. We're not going to go through all of these, but let me just say these. He's talking about forgiveness of all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, which is saving your life from death, crowns you with love and mercy, things we seek in life. You have royalty. There's a crown that he gives you. And he captures it all and says he's going to renew your life like an eagle. And he chooses an eagle because they're free, they're healthy, they're strong, they fly and they soar. And it says one of the benefits of doing life with God is that he's going to renew you so that you fly in life like an eagle. No, those are big promises. But that's what we're not supposed to forget. Forget not all his benefits. And notice that the word all runs throughout verses 2 to 3. Notice how comprehensive it is. And forget not all his benefits. And he says, forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. And says, I'll save your life from the pit. That's death and life. So it's comprehensive. So the first thing you preach to yourself is saying, don't forget who God is and what he's done for you. All your iniquities heals all your diseases. He saves you from the pit. All of that, sin and sickness, death and life, all forgiveness of everything you've done is enraptured in the grand scope of God's grace for you in Jesus Christ. Friends, what it tells us, and I don't need to perhaps remind you guys of this, is that naturally you and I are probably very fickle in our thinking. Our minds are notoriously forgetful. 
especially as you get older, we constantly battle what I like to call spiritual amnesia. We are getting messages preached to us from social media, from news, from school, politics, from friends. You are getting preached at on every major issue in life 24-7. But here's the thing. Do you know who talks to you the most? And do you, in fact, know who you listen to the most? The answer is you. No one listens more to you than you. No one talks to you more than you. So if you want to sort of get through all the media and all the friends and all the politics, although there's a lot of good there, but you want to get to the essence of your main communication line, it's you talking to yourself. And I think the psalmist understands that. That's why he says, bless the Lord, oh my soul. I got to talk to myself. I got to preach the gospel to myself. And that's really important because they say in life, count your blessings. And if you ever named your top five blessings, my guess would be it'd be some version of my job I still have, my family if you're married and kids, or maybe if you're not, your, your family, your parents, your siblings. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's you have enough money. And those are things we could thank God for, but those are materialistic blessings, which is absolutely fine. But what the psalmist gears us towards is to understand when you count your blessings, forget not all his benefits, the primary gist of it is our, these blessings are spiritual in nature. Because material blessings are good as in of themselves, but if all you're thankful for God is material things, then it's only a matter of time before you become dissatisfied. Because one doctor, one scholar, Dr. Gerard Lois, says this, if all you are is just thanking God for materialism, then essentially you have a materialist life. And materialists seldom are thankful in the long run. They feel like they've earned all the material possessions for themselves. There's not really a sense of gratitude, he says. Generally not grateful as a rule because you're never fully filled in your heart if all you're thankful for are material things. You're always grasping for more. You're wanting more. Physical things are good, but if that's all you're thankful for, it'll essentially run out and you'll become bitter. It's not only those people who are grasping for material possessions that are thankful, but if you want long-lasting thankfulness, you want to be thankful for spiritual blessings. Friends, when was the last time that you thank God at all, but for spiritual blessings, for redemption, adoption, justification, forgiving all my iniquities, giving me a new life, renewing my soul so I could fly like an eagle? Because if you haven't done that, then I'm here to tell you, you're going to forget all the benefits of God really quickly. But if you don't, then you recognize the spiritual benefits that you get that can help you to praise God in your soul are all given to you completely and climatically in Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, Jesus, God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, in him, through him. Adoption, redemption, forgiveness, ransoming you from your sins and death. Every spiritual blessing that the psalmist talks about in 1 through 5, saying don't forget this, ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ because all of that has been accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus for you. So in one way, it says in the big picture, forget not all his benefits means forget not all Jesus Christ has done for you, the spiritual blessings that you have. But secondly, we look at this. Don't forget his benefits, but preach to your soul, preach to your heart. And he says, remember God's mercy and grace. Where do I get that? Read with me verse 8. 
The Lord is merciful and gracious. It's right there. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He goes back in history to the time of Exodus. That's the background of verse 8, where Moses freed his people from the captivity of the Egyptians. But he's talking about mercy and grace, and there's a reason, I think, that the author, King David, begins with those two characteristics and says, don't forget that God is merciful and gracious. Because in the background of the story of Moses is really chapter 34, the book of Exodus. And this is a quick story. Moses freed his people, the Israelites, from Egypt. They wandered through the wilderness. God gave them the Ten Commandments and says, I'm going to marry you. Here are my commandments. Let's have a relationship. That was in Exodus 32. But in 32, when Moses came down the Ten Commandments, Israel was worshiping, <clears throat> worshiping idols. And after they immediately broke the Ten Commandments, Exodus 34 says, God, he still wants to love you. He's going to stick with you. And he says, I'm going to carry this through. I'm in this for the long run. Essentially, you could think about it like this. You get married. Two weeks later, you commit adultery. And then your spouse comes to you and says, I'm going to forgive you. And I'm in this for the long run. That's basically the story behind verse 8. Israelites got Ten Commandments. They married God. And then they committed adultery with the golden calf in Exodus 34, which is the background of verse 8. God says, I'm still going to help you out, forgive you, and do life with you. This is the point, friends. We have to remember that God is merciful and gracious, and this is why. Because essentially in verses, verse 8 or Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, God is basically saying, I'm going to proclaim my name to you. I'm going to forgive you, but I want to remind you who I am. And he's basically saying, Moses, let me tell you what I'm like. I'm going to show you and reveal to you why I'm so good and why that you can commit adultery, but I'm going to stick with you. In Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, it says, the Lord, the Lord God, which means that in Hebrew, he's emphasizing this about his characteristic. And the first thing that he says about himself, do you know what God says? You committed adultery, but lo the Lord, the Lord God, I'm emphatic. Moses, let me tell you what I'm about. Do you know what God says? He could have said everything. He could have said, Moses, I created the universe. Moses, I could snap my fingers and create and destroy this universe. But you know what he says? For the first time after Israel committed adultery, he says, Moses, I'm gracious and I'm merciful. That's what he said. That's how he wants to introduce himself. And it's very different from Exodus 20. When you first get the Ten Commandments, do you know what God, how he introduced himself when he proposed to Israel, bringing the Ten Commandments? He says, I'm a jealous God. <laughs> he says, I want to be your God alone. No other idols. No sleeping around. You know, no capturing uh, your heart with other idols in this world, other, other fake spouses. He says, I'm a jealous God. And if you want to marry me, here's my ring. Here's the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And he says, the first thing he introduces himself, I am a jealous God. But once we committed adultery, the first thing that God says about himself as he introduces himself, yet again in Exodus 34, he didn't say, I'm a jealous God. Get ready for my wrath. He says, I'm merciful and gracious. And that's why I think behind verse 8 in Psalm 103, the psalmist is saying, remember that he is slow to anger, merciful and gracious. Because you and I in our hearts, which the Bible calls idolatry, are committing spiritual adultery. That's the book of Hosea. That's the theme of Israel and God. And every time God says, I am gracious and I am merciful. I am merciful and I'm gracious. 
I'm slow to anger. Remember that. Preach that to yourself. When you feel guilty and you sin right again and there's blackness in your heart or you have this failure in the sense that you've failed once again and the psalmist is saying, how do you praise God in the midst of ashes in your dark times? Remember that I'm gracious and merciful. I'm slow to anger. And then you may be thinking to yourself, what does it mean exactly that he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger? And then God says in verses 10 to 12, he says, well, let me explain it to you. I'll tell you what it means. I'm slow to anger. He says, I'm never going to treat you according to your sins. I'm never going to address you according to your iniquities. Because as high as heaven is from the earth, that's how big my steadfast love is for you. And as far as east is from the west, infinite, that's how far I'm going to take your transgressions from you. He said, that's what it means when I say I'm gracious and merciful. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm actually scared of heights. And whenever I go to high places, I get a little bit nervous. I feel like I'm a little bit dizzy. I feel like I feel every tremble when I'm on the second floor of a building and I look over the ledge. And so I remember the first time I went up on the Space Needle in Seattle, I was terrified. I couldn't stand outside. I sat inside. I turned inward and just looked at the elevator until we're ready to go because I was petrified. And it's not just a Space Needle. I remember standing up on the Empire State Building in New York City, looking out at Midtown at the middle of the night, and it was beautiful, but I felt really scared. Even at California Adventure at Disneyland, when I ride the Mickey Ferris wheel, and I'm riding the one cart that goes up top, it's not even the one that moves back and forth, if those of you know what I'm talking about, one that's stationary. And once we got up top, I was like, I'm, I think I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm so scared. Heights. I read once, you guys could correct me if you're into science and astronomy, that the edge of the known universe is 14 million, 14 billion light years away to the known universe, the edge. That means you've got to travel at the speed of light for 14 billion years to go to the edge of the universe. That's how far east or west that you have to go to. And what God is saying, that 14 billion years, that's a speck of how far I remove your transgressions from you. Sears Tower, Mickey Ferris Wheel, Empire State Building, 14 billion year, years, light years north is a speck to how high my steadfast love is for you. Remember, preach to your soul, I am gracious and I am merciful, slow to anger, and that's how far I take away your transgressions. One quick note before we go to the third thing. The target here, particularly in this section of the psalm, is our sin. You notice the synonyms and all the varieties of sins that the psalmist talks about that David piles up. He says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So far does he remove our transgressions. Sins of all kinds, the buffet of sins, sins of all sorts, and all dimensions, every description of sin, every kind of sin, every depth of sin, every degree of sin, 
can find forgiveness and cleansing in the steadfast love of God for you. That's how big God is. So in the midst of ashes and the difficulty of life, how do you praise God? What do you preach to your soul? Forget not all his benefits, but also remember he is gracious and merciful. And here's the third thing we could preach to ourselves. Remember that one thing we all crave in our hearts is to belong to a family. And what God tells us is saying, you are my eternal family, I will be your father. So preach to yourself and to your soul that God is your father. Look at verses 13 to 14. Very simply, he says, after forgiving your sins, as the father shows compassion, a really deep emotional word, as the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. He knows everything about you, your makeup. He knows you through and through. But he says, as the father shows compassion to his children, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I think it's intentional because he didn't say, as a king shows compassion to his soldiers. He doesn't say, as a president shows compassion to his constituents. He says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. They say in Christianity, the greatest, the preeminent blessing of Christianity is to know that you are adopted as a child. Yes, you're justified, and he proclaims and declares a righteousness and a forgiveness over you by the invitation of Christ's righteousness to you on sure grace by faith. And he also says you'll grow by sanctification, conform to the image of Jesus Christ from day to day, one moment to the next, according to the Bible. He says that's also really good. You'll have a new community. You'll have a new home. I'll let you into the golden gates of heaven. You'll experience a blessing that you can never imagine before. But he says what usurps all that is that you can call me dad. That's a preeminent blessing, according to J.I. Packer. As a father shows compassion to his children, preach that to yourself. You have a dad. You have a father who's perfect in every way. Now, a father is both in the Bible a legal reality, but also a relational reality. In other words, you can have a legal biological dad, but that doesn't mean that your relational experience with your dad is the same. Does that make sense? You know, I think that's the heart of a lot of arguments between father-son because when you're arguing with your kid, you're saying, listen, I am your father. You're not thinking about genetics. You're not thinking relationally. The dad is thinking, I am your father. And you're saying, I have authority over you. I have a legal right over you. But that's why the child, the son, will say out of pain and anger, you've never been a dad to me because the son is thinking fatherhood relationally, the experience of it communication, doing life together, forgiveness. But the dad in that moment is thinking legally, and that's also true in the Bible as well. You could be a father legally, you're adopted in the doctrine of justification, but you also have a relational experience with God the Father. Because isn't it true that you can't be any more or less right now, any more or less biologically, legally, a son or daughter of your dad right now? Isn't that the case? Even if you act as the worst son or daughter, or you have no relationship because of a brokenness in your family, it doesn't fluctuate your legal status. You are 100% biologically a son or daughter of your biological dad. That's true in Christianity as well. It's also saying God is your father. This is the book of Galatians, everywhere in the New Testament and Old, that legally you're adopted, so no matter what you do in your sin, you can't be any more or less a son or daughter of God because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ for you. But yet, isn't it also true that there's a relational side 
where you pray to God and you read the Bible and you repent and you do life with God in community in the church so that you can experience being a son or daughter of God in a way that your heart desperately craves. That's how God relates to you. Well, I got this illustration from Tim Keller. If you read a little bit from him, it's everywhere. He uses this, I think, very helpful analogy, but what does it mean that you have God as your father? What does that do for you? And he uses this illustration and says, it's like being the son or daughter of the president of the United States. Now, to meet the president, for us, we may never have it, but to have a chance, you got to jump through hoops. you got to make appointments. You have to do everything. You have to network. But if you're the child of the president, what do you got to do? All you have to do is run on into the office and say, Daddy, I'm here. You and I may have a chance to kind of jump through hoops and get an appointment with the president, but the son and daughter, a kid, the child of the president could just wake him up at 3 a.m. in the morning. You could walk into his room and sit on his lap. And in that very moment, it's not, as if God, if not, it's not as if the president stops being the president, but in that moment, he's relating to his child as a father. The fact that he's a father this way is something that only a child can experience. Anyone else has to run towards the president, you'll probably get shot by Secret Service. But only a child can run to the president anytime. And the president will not stop being president. He's still the most powerful man in the world, the chief commander, but he relates to the child as a father. See, that's what Keller's trying to get out now, and I think that's what we will remember in verses 13 to 14. Everybody needs an appointment, but only the child at 3 a.m. in the morning can say, Dad, I need a drink of water. Even the wife, he says, you know, if I need a drink of water, the president says, I have the most stressful job in the world, please go get the water for yourself. But if a kid jumps into bed and says, Dad, I need a cup of water in the middle of the night, the president of the United States is going to act like a dad and he's going to go get the cup of water. He may be the president, he may be this or that, the most important man in the world, the most powerful man in the world, but in that moment of getting that cup of water, he is relating to his child as a dad. And what the Bible is saying, it has this really deep audacity to say, is that when you relate to God, who is infinite and holy, and he's omnipotent, he created the universe, he's gentle for you, but when you relate to God preeminently, you relate to him through the filter of a father. Of course, God is still powerful, he's still king, he's still judge, he's still the holy one. He's still the one that judges and sends people to hell because he's holy and righteous. But because he's your father, his love is on you. You relate to God as father preeminently, even though he still is everything else that we know him to be according to the Bible. And that's what he's trying to tell us in Psalm 103. Remember that he's your father. Yeah, he still is judge. He still cares about sin. Yes, he's still a creator of the world. But in the moment that you're hurting, in the moment that you're confused, you could have access to God anytime you want through prayer. You could jump in his lap. And in that moment, the God of the universe, the king of our kings, the Lord of lords is relating to you as a dad. So you could remember that. You know, as Thomas Newton once wrote about this story about a, a father and son uh, walking down, just enjoying a walk together, and then for some reason, the dad picks up the son and carries him in his arms. And he says, I love you, son. And the son says back to him, I love you too, dad. And he puts the dad back 
puts the son back down, and they walk together. Just because the dad carried the son in his arms didn't make the boy any more of a son or any less. But he probably, in that moment in his arms, hearing the words, I love you too, son, felt more like a son in his experience. And that's you and me. That's what we want to cultivate. That's what our heart desires. That's what we are to do in our relationship with God, to relate to him as a son or daughter. They say that Jesus in the Gospels addressed God as Father every time. Abba, Father, God the Father, my Father. They addressed God as Father every time except once, and that was on the cross of Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus say to God? For the first time he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His passion is still intimate, but it's interesting that on the cross, when he was suffering for your sin and my sin, in order for you and I, who are orphans, to be adopted into the kingdom of God, Jesus, who always addressed God as Father for the first time on the cross, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do this? Because Jesus loved you. He wanted to bring you into his family. He knows that you want that heart, have that heart, that craving, that desire to be loved just like Thomas Newton talks about. And Jesus Christ, in his love for you, has made that happen. So what do you preach to your soul? You want to get your soul in tune with praising God. Forget not all his benefits. Remember that he's gracious and merciful. Remember that he is a father who has compassion to you. And last but not least, God gives you a home. Read verses 15 to 17. As for a man... His days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children. I moved around a lot when I was growing up, ever since elementary school and uh, even until California in 2011, but as a child I moved around a lot because my dad moved around for his job. I think I lived in about eight different states growing up in elementary all the way to high school. And in those eight states, I think I moved probably around like 12 or 13 times total. So I got into the habit of moving around. And that, I didn't realize that that was an unusual experience until later on where I recognized most families don't do that. You sort of situate yourself at the same place, maybe move two or three times. I moved around 12 or 13 times. I think that conditioned me in some ways to think about home in a different way. Even now, I get questions, even last week, my 11th year here at New Life in California in Orange County, and I still get the question, does California feel like home? And I say, no. Neither does New Jersey, the armpit of America. I feel like I don't have a home. You know, in some ways, California feels familiar but even after 11 years, I still don't feel like necessarily it's home. I think for a lot of us, it does, and that's understandable. But in your heart of hearts, what verses 15 to 17 is talking about is how short life is. And in some ways, we're all looking for home. It's interesting where it says here, this analogy, that man's life flourishes like a flower of the field really quick. For the wind passes over it, blows it away, and then it's gone. But this is really what... It's very nostalgic and very hard. It says, its place knows it no more. You know, a place knows it no more. Everything that you've done in life, in some ways, is fleeting. You think it's home, but the place will not remember you because this world is not your home. 
this big mega church pastor, when he retired, he planted a church and it exploded to 10,000 or more people. And when he retired as the founding pastor, this one other friend of his who's older gave him this word of advice. And he says, this is the word of advice I have for you as the founding pastor of this megachurch when you retire. They will forget you quickly. And I think that's absolutely true. You have no home, but that's what our heart craves, doesn't it? You want familiarity. That's why you love vacation, but you want to come back to your place. You love sleeping in a hotel, but you want to come back to your bed. That's why your heart longs for nostalgia. We go back and look back in history, and I love doing this too. I like going back to the places I live back in New Jersey, in Florida. It triggers memories. There's nostalgia, and I think nostalgia is basically a reminder we're not at home yet. The place will never know you anymore, knows you no more. It's fleeting. It's quick. But this is the interesting. Where is your home? Well, if you look at verse 17, in contrast, you know, that's why the conjunction there says, but, so you will have a short life, a quick life, the place will know you no more. Where do I live? Where do I plant my roots? Where's my home? Where's my zip code and address for eternity? And certainly it's the kingdom of heaven for those of us who've given our lives to Jesus. But verse 17 takes it a different direction. He says, the place knows it no more, but the steadfast love of the Lord it's from everlasting to everlasting. Notice that it says, it could have said, the place knows it no more, but you know, a place that will always know your name, the kingdom of God, enter through those gates, those pearly white gates, and you'll have a place there. And that's absolutely true. But here it gets to something at the core. It says, there is a place that will be home for you, heaven, but the essence of home is not geographical, it's relational. That's why it says, the steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. The place will know you no more. You'll never have a home. Your life is like a flower, but you have an everlasting to everlasting love. And saying where we'll feel ultimately at home is on our vertical relationship with God, to know the love of God for us, shown to us with crystal clarity in the person and work of Jesus. So if you feel restless, if you feel in your life that you don't know who you are, a sense of identity, an existential crisis, you don't know exactly what you're supposed to do or what you're supposed to live and how you're supposed to engage with different people. And you feel lost inside even though you have the same zip code. It's because at the end of the day, the place will know you no more. The only re reality that we will have a place of home is to know the love of God, the love of the Lord. It's from everlasting to everlasting. That's how powerful the love of God is. He could have just said everlasting. That's already eternity. It's almost saying from eternity to eternity is doubling eternity. Everlasting times two. And that's what we're called to remember. This Greek scholar, Bill Mounts, once gave this illustration. He says that if you can imagine in a human mind a timeline of eternity, everlasting to everlasting, goes as far east and as far west as you can imagine, what do you think our, what, clinical 90 years of biological earthly life will look like on this everlasting to everlasting time of eternity? Well, let's say for argument's sake, about three seconds. That's your life. That's what you have here. It's like a flower. The wind's going to blow over it. They will forget you quickly. It's almost as if the psalmist wants us to praise God because he's saying we have God's love from everlasting to everlasting can you not live faithfully for him for three seconds? Not to minimize pain, not to minimize suffering, but in the big picture, in the grand scheme of God's grace for you, secured and procured in the person of Jesus Christ, 
earn on your behalf, given to you by grace and faith. The love demonstrated in his son, Jesus Christ, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He says, my love is from everlasting to everlasting. And your life on here, as good as it is, as hard as it may be, and it doesn't discount suffering, can you live faithfully for me for three seconds? Because your home is from everlasting to everlasting. In the love of the cross of God shown to you in his son today, right now, in the gospel that comes to you. You want your soul to preach, your soul to praise, preach those four truths to your heart every day. If you do, you'll be like an eagle that flies. You'll be soaring in life. You'll be free, you'll be resonant, you'll be all that you could be, created in God's image, redeemed in his son Jesus. Let's turn to the Lord, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your son Jesus Christ who we receive all the benefits of salvation, whose expression of your grace and mercy, who is the reason we could be adopted as your children, and who gives us your love everlasting, everlasting, so we could feel at home, we could feel at place, be comfortable with who we are. We long for this, we crave it. We pray that we would preach these things to our souls so that we may bless you, O Lord. We thank you and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.